Dear Father, as we uh, prepare to come and to hear from your word, Lord, we pray that you would be with our hearts, preparing us, helping us to surrender ourselves to you, helping us to uh, set aside any preconceived notions that we may have um, that are built upon what this world values rather than upon what your word actually says. Um, help us, Lord, to come willing to have the spotlight of your word shine brightly upon our lives, to, uh, to lay bare, to expose any areas where we are not living in accordance with your will. And Lord, make us willing to um, confess that the moment we see it, to confess it to you, to come before you um, seeking forgiveness, Lord, and um, cleansing that Christ has purchased for us at the cross. Uh, we thank you that you are faithful, Lord. Once, when, when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, and every time we come to your word, um, it's look, like looking into a mirror and we see, the, we see the stains, we see the blemishes, Lord. Um, but you're always such a gracious father to us to welcome us with open arms, to to yearn to hear from us, um, to have us confess to you and you're right there to cleanse us, to forgive us, and to continue to conform us to Christ. And we pray that you would do that even this morning as we study your word together. May your spirit help me um, to explain your word faithfully and accurately and clearly. And anything I say that is not faithful to your word, may you give your people discernment. Um, to recognize that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in 1 Corinthians today, chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to start reading from verse 4, just so you can see the connection between this passage and what we've already looked at. So verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Uh, when I was growing up in the summers, I would often help my uncle bale hay. He, or, he owned a horse farm and he boarded Horses, and so every summer he needed to make sure that he could get enough hay in the barn to last the long winter. And for most of those summers, when I helped him, my uncle did not have a kicker baler, you know, a baler that would just launch hay bales off and just on its own throw those things into a wagon. He had one that just kind of slowly fed it off itself, and we and my, my and my, me and my cousin would stand there and we would pull the bales off of the baler and stack them. And the wagon that my uncle had 
um, was not an enclosed wagon. It just had a wood frame at the back, and the other three sides were open. So we had to make sure we stacked those bales really well. Otherwise, you'd have bales just falling off as we were circling the field, taking up the hay on the ground. And uh, if I do say so myself, we were very good at stacking those bales. And we would push the limits of that wagon. We would stack those bales tight and see how high we could get it, how full we could get it. And my uncle would say, well, I think we're about done. And we'd say, no, we can fit more on there. And so we would try. We had a lot of fun doing that, my cousin and I. But at the same time, we always knew who ran the operation. It was my uncle's tractor. It was his wagon. It was his hay. It was his hay field. It was his farm. We were not free to handle the hay any way we wanted to handle it. We were not free to take as long as we wanted to get the job done. You can't bale hay in the rain, so when the sun was shining, it was time to get to work and get that hay off of the ground. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, Paul begins to use the farmer's field as a picture of the church. And as we've seen repeatedly, these believers that he's writing to, they have been boasting in men. They've been acting as though Paul and Apollos or Cephas are something special, treating them as if they're part owners of the church, acting as if rallying behind the right guy will make them also part owners of the church and elevate their status in the church. These believers were forgetting that the church is God's church. He is the sole owner of the church, and he is not looking to sell any percentage of his ownership to anyone else. And so in this passage, we'll see that Paul will show these believers the humble position that he and Apollos have in the church, thereby humbling these believers that they might recognize and embrace the humble position that they themselves have in the church. And the Lord led Paul to write this down so that we also could receive the benefit of being humbled and being reminded of our place in our Lord's church. So first we're going to look at verse 5, and Paul is going to remind us that Ministers are servants, not masters. Ministers are servants, not masters. Look at verse 5. Paul says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So Paul, as he's been doing these past couple chapters, he's continuing to try to recalibrate the Corinthians' thinking, because their boasting in mere men shows that they're not thinking rightly, not thinking clearly. And so Paul asks them a question. He asks them to consider what is Apollos and what is Paul, and does what they are merit your boasting in them? And Paul answers the question for them by reminding them that Paul and Apollos are mere servants through whom they came to faith in Christ. So Paul is showing them, listen, me and Apollos, we were not the cause 
of your salvation. Yes, these believers were converted and were being sanctified under the ministries of Apollos and Paul, but that did not mean that the Corinthians owed their salvation and their sanctification to Apollos and Paul. Paul is saying to these believers that he and Apollos were merely instruments whom God chose to draw the Corinthians to himself. Their ministries and the effect of their ministries had been determined by the Lord, not by Apollos and Paul. He says, we are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. The fact that Christ had sent Paul, had sent Apollos to Corinth, and the fact that Christ was the one who had brought these individuals to faith through the ministry of the very servants that Christ himself had sent to them meant that the Corinthians had no reason to boast in Apollos and Paul as if these men had sent themselves to the Corinthians or that these men had created faith within these believers themselves. The Corinthians had no reason to boast in mere men. They had every reason to boast in the Lord who was the one who sent those men to proclaim the gospel to these believers. And I think there's a helpful application here for us. Is there a preacher or a teacher that you fondly look back on during the time in your life when you were born again? Or maybe when you took a leap forward in your sanctification? Maybe it was a preacher or a teacher in a local church you attended, or this church. Maybe somebody on the radio or on television. Probably many of us have someone like that in mind, whom the Lord used greatly in our lives. But the question we need to consider is, what do you think about that person? Do you give credit to that person for your salvation instead of to the Lord? Do you rely on that person for your sanctification instead of relying on the Holy Spirit? Do you boast in that person and consider yourself superior to anyone who does not value that person the same way you value them. Oh, I'm smart enough to recognize this guy has what it takes. Maybe someday you'll wake up and start listening to this guy that I'm recommending to you. If so, you have forgotten that this person is nothing but a servant of God, whom the Lord chose to use in your life to draw you to himself. And you need to remember, the Lord could have chosen anyone to do that. The Lord did not need this person to save you. He was simply gracious enough toward this person to invite this person into what the Lord was doing and to use him in your life in an amazing way. Now, don't get me wrong, it's right and it's biblical to thank God for that person, to appreciate that person, to give honor to that person. The scriptures command us to do that for those who labor diligently among us, but we have to take care that we do not ever start worshiping that person. Just another word of application before we move on to the next verse. Notice again the end of verse 5. He says, even as, referring to himself and Apollos, even as the Lord gave to each one. Paul and Apollos 
Each had the ministry they had because it had been given to them by the Lord. The extent of a person's ministry and the effectiveness of their ministry does not depend upon the skill of the minister, but upon the sovereign working and choice of God. Look back, if you would, at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Remember, this is the chapter where Luke records the history of Paul's first arrival in Corinth and his preaching of the gospel there. Acts 18, and I'll read from verses 5 through 11. Verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now pay attention to these next two verses. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. The Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and he strengthened Paul. He encouraged Paul. And he let Paul know that Paul would not be quickly driven out of Corinth by persecution as he had been in other places. I mean, that was kind of a recurring trend. Paul would show up, preach the gospel for a little bit, and then he'd get kicked out of the city. But Jesus is saying, no, you're going to have a long ministry here. And notice the reason why Paul was going to have uh, not much trouble in the way of persecution. It was because the Lord said, for I have many people here. The Lord had predetermined to save many people in this city a certain amount of people that Jesus described as belonging to him. He said, I have many people. So you're going to stay here for a year and a half, and all of these people that I have are going to be saved. You see, the extent and the effectiveness of Paul's ministry there depended not on Christ, or excuse me, depended not on Paul, but on Christ. Christ determined how his ministry would play itself out in Corinth. And that's a reminder to us that there is no place for jealousy in the Christian life because whatever your ministry involves, however far it reaches, whomever it touches, that is determined not by you, but by God. So if you respond with jealousy towards someone whom you see to have a more prosperous ministry than yours, you are actually grumbling against God who gave you the ministry you have, gave you the fruit that you see. He determined it. And it's wrong to be jealous because we forget that what do we deserve from God, actually? 
hell because of our sins. So the fact that he would be pleased to use me in any way, shape, or form, even if it's just to touch one person, to help one person see more of Christ, I should be floored by that, that the Lord would see fit to use me, to invite me into his work, to take part in his victory, to bring him glory and honor. There's no place for jealousy because the servant does not get to choose what service he will render to the master. The master chooses what service the servant will render to him. Ministers are servants, not masters. That brings us to our second point that we'll see in verses 6 through 7. And it's this. Ministers are dispensable, not indispensable. Ministers are dispensable, not indispensable. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Paul uses the picture of an agricultural field to illustrate what he's been talking about. Paul planted, Apollos watered. They had different ministries, and their respective ministries probably differed in giftedness, probably differed in extent, how many people it reached, and probably differed in effect as well. Paul planted the field. He was the first one to come and to bring the gospel to Corinth. And Apollos watered the field. He followed Paul and he ministered the truth to these Corinthian believers and to that city. But neither Paul nor Apollos caused that gospel seed to sprout, to grow, and to bear fruit. God alone was the cause of that. The farmer sows the seed, he waters the ground, but he is totally reliant upon the creative power of God to cause the seed to grow. And it's the same way with gospel ministry. Verse 7, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. The Corinthians, they'd been boasting in Paul and Apollos as if Paul and Apollos possessed the ability to supernaturally germinate and grow the seed of the gospel within them. But Paul is reminding them God alone can do that. God alone can cause you to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone can bury a seed in the ground and sprinkle water on it. But only God can make it grow. So Paul is saying, Apollos and I are nothing. God is everything. So it doesn't make any sense at all to boast in someone who's dispensable. Who did a job that anyone could have done. Rather than to boast in the one who is indispensable. God himself who alone brought you to faith in Christ. And the Corinthians, they were likely boasting in Paul or Apollos due to the outward success that they were seeing each man having. They saw, wow, look at how many people Paul brought to Christ. I'm going to throw my lot in with him. He'll give me a good name in the church. Others are saying, look at Apollos. Look at how he preaches. My, my brother in Christ over there, he was a dunce in the faith before Apollos came. Now look at him. I'm going to throw my 
my lot in with Apollos, and I'll gain a name for myself there. They were probably seeing the effects of the ministries, and, and to the degree that they were impressed by Paul or Apollos, they rallied behind that individual. But Paul here shows that kind of evaluation to be foolish. The outward effectiveness of someone's ministry says nothing about that person's ability because Scripture clearly shows that man has no ability to save or to sanctify anyone. Instead, the outward effectiveness that you see in someone's ministry says everything instead about the gracious power of God to redeem and to sanctify sinners. I want to show you an extreme example of this. While at seminary, a friend of mine shared his wife's testimony with me. And I'm a little fuzzy on the details, so I'm trying as best I can to retell it faithfully. But my friend went with someone to a Joel Osteen church service. And not because he was an admirer of Joel Osteen, but because he knew him to be a false teacher and he wanted to observe the church service. And my friend happened to take his wife along. And at that service, for some reason, uh, uncharacteristically, Joel Osteen made reference to one of Jesus' hard sayings in the gospel, where Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And if it wasn't that verse, it was a verse similar to that. And it turns out that my friend's wife was not a believer at the time. And so she heard that verse referenced and she repented and believed. My friend's wife got saved at a Joel Osteen church service. Now does that mean that Joel Osteen is a faithful minister of the gospel and that we should recommend him to others? Absolutely not. Joel Osteen is a false teacher and we should stay far, far away from him. So what happened there? What happened is that God simply was pleased to put his grace on display by, as he has spoken through a donkey, as he spoke through Caiaphas, a word of prophecy, he, in his sovereignty, led Joel Osteen to read a verse that Joel Osteen doesn't even believe in. And this friend of mine, his wife, by the mercy of God, was saved in a place like that. And similar situations happen if Scripture is read at a Roman Catholic church or at a Mormon church or at a Jehovah's Witness church and someone is truly saved in response to some Scripture from the Word of God that was actually happened to be read in that place, does that mean then that those churches are proclaiming the true gospel? No. It simply means that enough scripture happened to be mentioned for God to bring that person to faith. And that new believer should quickly leave uh, those cults and find a gospel-believing and gospel-proclaiming church. But it shows you that God is in control of the effectiveness. And just because someone has an effective ministry doesn't mean that you should draw any firm conclusions about the man himself. God causes the growth, not the minister. And that brings us to our last two verses. Verses 8 and 9, where Paul shows us 
that ministers are farmhands, not owners. Ministers are farmhands, not owners. Verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. As I've said 20 times, the Corinthians have been boasting about Paul and Apollos, and they've been boasting about them as if these two ministers were in competition with each other, saying, oh, I'm going to get behind Paul, or I'm going to get behind Apollos. They're acting as if they're competing with one another. And that is a very crass, unbiblical way to view the ministry. And we can so easily fall into that attitude. We can feel threatened if a person with a similar ministry starts to have more effectiveness to our eyes than our own. And we can start to think, oh, I gotta, I gotta work harder. I need to outdo that person's ministry because I need people to come to my ministry, not their ministry. But that is not how Paul thought at all. Paul rejoiced at seeing the effectiveness of other people's ministries because it meant that God was gaining more glory for himself and was saving more people. If I get jealous in ministry, or if you get jealous in ministry, it means that you are in it for yourself, not for the glory of God, not for the good of his people. Ministers are not opposing players on a football field trying to beat one another. They are farmhands on a wheat field laboring together to bring in the harvest for the owner of that field. It's all about the owner. It's all about the Lord God. So Paul says in verse 8, he who plants, speaking of himself, and he who waters, speaking of Apollos, are one. He says we are one. You Corinthians are pitting us against each other, but I'm telling you, me and Apollos are one. They are working the same field. They are striving for the same goal, the glory of God, the salvation of the lost, and the building up of God's church. And that is a diametrically opposed attitude to the attitude that the Corinthians were having. The Corinthians were in competition with one another rather than being united in working together. So Paul stresses his unity with Apollos. But then he goes on in verse 8 to stress his and Apollos's humble accountability toward God, which again contrasts starkly with the Corinthians' pride. He says in verse 8, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Each will receive his own reward or wages according to his own labor. The way these believers had been boasting about Paul and Apollos would make you think that these men were the owners of God's church rather than being simple farmhands who were working the field. And Paul wants to show them that he and Apollos are accountable to God. They don't answer to themselves. They are accountable to God for the work that they put in. Paul says that God is going to pay them wages or give them a reward according to his own labor. 
He's saying that the day is coming when God would examine Paul's work and examine Apollos' work and compensate them not based on how big their ministry was, not based on how effective their ministry was, but based on their labor, on how diligently and faithfully they labored for their master, not based on how many people were rallying behind their name. That meant nothing to Paul and Apollos. We read Revelation 22, and I want to read a portion of that again. Revelation 22, verse 12, where the Lord Jesus speaks to this very reality that the minister of God will need to stand before the Lord, the owner of the field, and give an accounting for the labor that he has done and receive recompense for that labor. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. If you are a believer, saved by grace, the day is coming when you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will determine what your reward in heaven will be. And that reward will be based not on how widespread a ministry you happen to have, nor on how effective your ministry was, but it will be based on how faithfully you labored for your master. If you are a mother at home and you are seeking to honor Christ by laboring in obscurity, changing messy diapers, or slaving over a hot stove, and humbly and lovingly submitting to your husband, not because he deserves it, but because Christ deserves it, your reward will be far greater than the preacher who is on a stage in front of thousands Sunday after Sunday, but who does not seek to honor Christ between Sundays. Your reward will be extravagantly more than that unfaithful preacher. It's based on your labor, your faithfulness. And I'm not talking about salvation. That's based on the merit of Christ. I'm talking about your rewards after God has saved you and you've worked for him. That's what I'm talking about. Paul closes this paragraph with verse 9. And verse 9 is an explanation of verse 8. So let me read verse 8 again, headed into 9. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For, you see that explanatory word, for we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. I'm going to go a little deeper into that phrase than you may want me to go, but I'm hoping it will be instructive for you. The Greek behind that phrase, for we are God's fellow workers, is a little ambiguous. This is what it literally says in the Greek. It says, for of God we are fellow workers. Of God we are fellow workers. Now what does Paul mean when he says that we are fellow workers, he and Apollos, of God? Does Paul mean that he and Apollos are co-workers with God? as the King James renders it? 
Or does he mean that he and Apollos are co-workers who belong to God, as the NIV renders it? The grammar of the Greek allows for either translation, and Bible translations are split on how to render the Greek of that verse. Some translate one way, some translate another way, and still other translations try to preserve the ambiguity, like the NASB and the ESV, to let the reader draw his own conclusion. So which one is it? Well, when you run into a situation like that, you have to let the context determine your interpretation. And it makes a lot more sense in the context of this passage to take Paul as meaning that he and Apollos are co-workers who belong to God, rather than saying they are co-workers with God. For Paul to say that he and Apollos are co-workers with God, hey, God is my co-worker working this field, it would somewhat undermine everything he's just been saying because it would put him and Apollos and God somewhat on the same plane. But Paul has been stressing that he and Apollos are nothing compared to God so that the Corinthians would stop boasting in them and start boasting in God. So this preferable interpretation of Paul and Apollos being co-workers with each other who both belong to God, being of God in that sense, that fits with what he's been saying throughout this whole passage and with what he has just said in verse 8. Remember in verse 8, he said, he who plants and he who waters are one. And then in verse 9, he explains that by saying, for we are fellow workers. Paul and Apollos are one. They are fellow workers, not in competition with each other, but fellow workers together, working the same field. And then he went on in verse 8 to say that he and Apollos will receive a reward or wages for their labor as servants, which says that they don't answer to themselves, they answer to a master who has employed them in the working of that field. And so when Paul says, we are fellow workers of God, he's restating what he just said in verse 8, we belong to God. We are laborers under our master who is God. Paul and Apollos are not owners of opposing football teams who are battling on a football field. They are instead fellow workers laboring together on the wheat field as servants who are of God, belonging to God who is the owner of that field. And the rest of the verse supports that interpretation as well. Let me read out for you what the whole verse literally says. It says, For of God we are fellow workers. Of God a field, of God a building you are. Paul says, of God, three times. And it's the head of each phrase. Of God, of God, of God. And clearly when he refers to the Corinthians as a field and a building of God. He's not saying you're a field with God who's also a field. He's saying you're a field who belongs to God. You're a building who belongs to God, just as me and Apollos are servants who belong to God. Paul is stressing that God owns everything, not only the field, but the workers in the field. Listen to what commentator Gordon Fee has to say in his comments on this verse. Quote, 
Everything is God's. The church, its ministry, Paul, Apollos, everything. Therefore, it is absolutely not permissible to say, I belong to Paul, since the only legitimate slogan is, we all belong to God, unquote. Paul is telling these believers, stop saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos. Apollos and I were not crucified for you. We belong to God just the same as you. Now, what's the application for us today? Taking into account all that we've gone through in in looking at these verses, do we realize whose church this is? These verses show us that it doesn't matter how long you've attended here. It doesn't matter what your position or role is here. It doesn't matter how much you have given to this church in time, energy, or money. Take myself as an example. Aside from the four years I was at seminary, I've attended this church since the day I was born. Thirty years I've been at this church, and now purely by the grace of God, and I don't know any other reason, I'm a pastor in this church. But this church does not belong to me now any more than it did the day I was born. And if I'm here another 70 years, I will still not own one fraction of this church. It's God's church and will always be God's church. And that means that you and I don't get to decide how this church gets run because it's not our field. It's not our building. It's Christ's field. If it were up to us to run it, this church would soon become a dead church, nothing but an empty shell of wood and plaster, fit only to be turned into a library like the one down the road or into a museum. The church is not a physical building. It is an assembly of people who were dead in their sins, headed for hell, children of wrath, but who have been made alive in Christ, have been forgiven of their sins through repentant faith that God gave them, and who have been made citizens of a heavenly kingdom where Jesus Christ is the uncontested king of the universe. And he is a king who is God incarnate, a king who spilled his blood to redeem his people for his own possession. Listen to the charge that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders as he was saying farewell to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You and I did not spill our blood to redeem a people. Jesus Christ did. He owns this church and everyone in this church. And there is coming a day when every single person in this room will stand before him to give an account of the labor that they have rendered to him in his church, in his field. 
And the question I want us to dwell on is, will you and I be found faithful? Will he say, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master? Let's pray.